Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, Brian Levinka talks with Brad Pritchett about a range of things, including attacks on trans children at this year's Texas legislative session. During the last legislative session, we saw this huge attack on trans kids coming from the folks who are in power in Austin. But one of the things that we saw as a result of that was parents of trans kids and trans kids themselves showing up at the Capitol time and time again to tell their stories and to try to put a human face on this issue that is really just purely political and designed as red meat for primary voters. Deborah Moncrief-Bell has a conversation with Patrick McIlvain, the founder of the Walk for Mental Health Awareness. I had Mayor Parker agree to be with us as she had for several walks. And when her office contacted me to know where to have her go, I realized I had not reserved the park. We had been in Studi Park. I frantically looked around and we went to Spot Park was available. So one or two years we were in Spot Park. We have the first part of a conversation with Shanna Ross, author of Tribeless, about growing up as an adopted lesbian Native American in East Texas. And then as a freshman in high school, when I had my first serious, serious girl crush, I knew that even though I was going to fight it as hard as I could, I knew that that was going to be my reality and that it would never be accepted. And we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. This is Brian Levinka, and today I'm speaking with Brad Pritchett about a book that he wrote called The Kid Who Became Governor. Brad, welcome to Queer Voices. Brian, good to see you and good to talk to you again. Tell me about the book. What's the inspiration behind the book and who are you trying to reach? Well, we were at Equality Texas. We've been dealing with all these cases from across the state where we're seeing this elevated aggression at the school board level. So we've seen parents going to school board meetings and you know making a lot of noise about books that they don't like in classrooms or curriculum that they don't want their kids taught, or even when teachers put up safe space stickers for LGBTQ plus students. And on top of that, we've seen this push across the state of Texas to ban books. Earlier in the year, this list of something like 800 books went out to school districts all across the state, asking if they could identify if they had these books in their libraries. And over 60% of the books on that list were books that had LGBTQ plus themes or characters in them. So we were seeing this huge push to ban books, and the bulk of them were about our community. During the last legislative session, we saw this huge attack on trans kids coming from the folks who are in power in Austin. But one of the things that we saw as a result of that was parents of trans kids and trans kids themselves showing up at the Capitol time and time again to tell their stories and to try to put a human face on this issue that is really just purely political and designed as red meat for primary voters. One of the things that I kept thinking about was how brave these kids were throughout the entire legislative session. We had kids who were skipping school and after school programs and things that they really loved to do to come for two minutes just to tell their story. I was trying to think of just a way to kind of put these things together and draw attention to them. And during a brainstorm session, we came up with this idea to write a children's book that highlighted the story of a trans kid here in Texas. So that was really kind of the idea, how the idea came to be. And then the story just kind of came to me one day. The story of the kid who became governor is about a trans kid here in Texas named Sandy, who is watching these attacks unfold on kids like them from these politicians who have all this power. And I've talked to a lot of kids over the last year who don't understand why people with power don't use that power to help people. And instead, they noticed, and they're very perceptive, that these folks are using their power to hurt really vulnerable Texans. In the book, Sandy notices that as well and makes a wish, and the wish is to help all kids in Texas. And as a result, they wake up one day and they get to be governor of Texas. And we get to see what it would be like to have a state of Texas that had a governor who was leading with kindness first and using their power to actually uplift all Texans instead of attack the most vulnerable among us. You mentioned Equality Texas and you're a field director there. Can you tell me about Equality Texas and what they do? 
We're the state's leading LGBTQ political advocacy organization. So we're a statewide organization. We've got staff all across the state. We spend a lot of time during the legislative session fighting anti-LGBTQ plus bills. Last session, in coalition with a lot of our partner organizations, we defeated 75 out of 76 anti-LGBTQ bills. Normally, when the legislative session ends, we get a little bit of a break or a breather. This year, we have not had that because these escalating attacks at the school board level, these attempts to ban books, we're seeing heightened reports of just vitriol being lobbied at LGBTQ folks, trans kids being targeted for who they are in schools. And we're really just full time right now trying to figure out the best ways to help uplift LGBTQ people and defend against these attacks because they aren't just happening at the legislature at this point. They're happening all across the state of Texas outside of the legislative session. Why are they attacking the most vulnerable part of our community, do you think? I don't think it's anything new. It's just heightened. I think one of the statistics that I saw was since 2016, attacks on trans folks have escalated something like 800%. What we've seen over and over again is politicians who are in power will look for scapegoats. They will look for folks that they can point to and say, all the problems that we're experiencing are because of this thing. Let's focus on this thing. And if we focus on that and we do something about that, everything else will get better. But the reality is that's a distraction. They're looking for something to distract from their own failed leadership. doesn't take much for us to just kind of take a step back and look at what the state of Texas has been through over the last year, from the power grid failures to our COVID response to diverting money away from essential services for stunts at our border, and wonder why are we spending all this time and energy focused on trans kids and not solving these actual problems. What we're seeing when people say, let's focus on this vulnerable segment of our population is really somebody saying, look over here, don't look over there, and trying to show us that, oh, I'm solving a problem, even though that's a problem that doesn't exist. And all the other problems get completely ignored. And we're watching this negligent leadership kind of play out. And the focus on trans kids and on LGBTQ folks in general is always going to be about how can we just make a scapegoat and try to distract from our own failed leadership. The legislative session is every other year, and it happens in odd years. Right. Every two years, we go back to Austin for a legislative session for generally for 140 days. What can we as Texans do besides trying to elect legislators that will be in our favor? What else can we do? Even if you live in a place where you don't have a good option on the ballot for a good legislator, and there are a lot of places in Texas where there may be incumbents who don't have a great record on LGBTQ equality who are running unopposed, so you don't have a choice, those folks will still be your representatives even after they get elected, even if you don't vote for them, uh, which means they are still accountable to you. So I always tell folks, if you live in a place where you don't feel represented by the person who is in elected office, that's even more reason to show up and make sure they know who you are. You can do visits to their local offices in your district. When the legislative session starts, we absolutely need people to come to Austin and meet with their legislators and make noise. Sometimes all we can do is really make a lot of noise in the Capitol to try to draw attention to these folks and what their records are. And sometimes we found that Folks want to do the right thing. They just need to be convinced that it's safe for them to do the right thing. And I hate that we are in a place where doing the right thing requires political courage because it shouldn't. But in some instances, there are lawmakers who just need to hear from constituents so that they can say, I'm going to vote this way. I'm going to do this thing because it's what my constituents say they wanted they wanted me to do. So if we can create a chorus of voices that help lawmakers feel comfortable making the right choices then that's always going to be helpful. When the legislative session starts in January of 2023, we need as many people as possible to be prepared to go to the Capitol. We weren't able to do this last session. We weren't able to have a, we usually have a really big lobby day at the Capitol where we invite folks from all across the state to come. We go visit lawmakers. We have a big rally. We didn't do that last session because of COVID protocols. We are planning to do it this year in 2023. So that's a really great opportunity for folks to come out, even if you just do it for one day. That's a great day to do it. And we'll be announcing on EqualityTexas.org the dates for those as we get a little closer to the legislative session. Let's get back to your book, The Kid Who Became Governor. I didn't know that you had illustrated the book as well. We spent a little bit of time trying to figure out what we wanted it to look like. It turned out better than I thought it would. 
I do a little bit of artwork for fun, but this was a little more intensive. We had a lot of good tools at our disposal and it turned out, it turned out really cute. I'm very happy with the way it turned out. In addition to illustrating it, I came up with the story, wrote it, and then our quality Texas staff helped edit it and made recommendations on kind of things that should happen in the story. So we were really, really happy with the way it turned out. What is the Met Queerla? The Met Queerla is a project that Equality Texas has taken on with the Mahogany Project here in Houston. We were thinking about trying to make voting fun in a way for folks who maybe don't think voting is fun. I'm a nerd. I think voting is fun. We've heard folks kind of refer to the Metropolitan Multi-Service Center on West Gray as the Met from time to time, which I find really funny. So we were thinking about the Met Gala and how it's this big deal every year where folks get dressed up, sometimes ridiculously so, and go and get photographed and go to this huge gala. Plus our community, we love going to galas and getting dressed up. So the Mahogany Project and Equality Texas were thinking about rolling out a a literal red carpet at the West Gray Multi-Service Center on the Saturday of early voting, October 29th, between 12 p.m. and 2 p.m., and making that particular early voting location as queer as it possibly can be. So the Met Queerla will be taking place at the Metropolitan Multi-Service Center. We want folks to come out during that two-hour block, folks who are members of the LGBTQ community, folks who are allies, and we want them to get dressed up. I mean, we want them to do what makes them feel most comfortable, whether that's wearing pride colors, wrapping themselves in a flag, coming in a tux, coming in a gown. We will roll out a literal red carpet, have folks walk it, We're going to have a commentator working that red carpet, asking folks why voting is important to them. And we want to make it a big party for a two-hour block at the West Gray Multi-Service Center on October 29th. Our hope is that we can encourage people to show up who may be on the fence about getting out and voting by making a really fun event for them and make it a community-driven event where folks can have a good time, but also exercise the importance of their vote. We're speaking with Brad Pritchett about the book, The Kid Who Became Governor. Brad, where can people get the book? If you go to equalitytexas.org, you can find information about how to order the book. Our social media channels, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Equality Texas. We'll have links posted on all those channels with uh, ways for folks to get a copy of the book if they want to order it. If people are out there on the fence about voting, what do you say to them about getting out to vote this time in the mid-term elections? Midterm elections are so much more important than folks give them credit for. This election cycle, you know, we have three really, 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 really good candidates running at the three highest tiers of government. So we have an opportunity to elect a governor, a lieutenant governor, an attorney general who are pro-equality. That is a huge deal. If we could get even one of those three offices with a pro-equality person in charge, it would completely change the direction of the next legislative session here in Texas. We always talk about how the government that impacts your life the most is the government that's physically closest to you. So your municipal government is the one that picks up your trash, but the next level up on that is going to be your state government and your legislators in Austin. These are the folks who are going to be making laws. And we saw from the last session, the kinds of laws that the folks who are currently in power are spending their time making. They are making laws that restrict access to abortion care. They are making laws that restrict our ability to cast our vote. They're making laws that attack children who are transgender and prevent them from getting life-saving health care. These are real things that have happened in the last session, and they're only going to continue those types of attacks if they return to Austin in 2023. So the importance of getting out in a midterm election cannot be understated. This election is going to be decided by, in some instances, in some races, a handful of votes. And you know, here in Harris County, you've got the county judge on the ballot. You've got judicial races on the ballot. All of those are so close to our lives and impact our lives on a daily basis that they absolutely need your vote. And there are really good candidates who are pro-equality who are going to push to do the right things with government instead of using government as a weapon against the people that they don't like. So if you're not registered to vote here in Harris County or anywhere where you're listening to this, you have until the 11th of this month to register. And if you come to the Montrose Center on Tuesday evening, starting around seven o'clock, We'll be doing voter registration stuff there, and we'll also have um, folks from Harris County Elections with an actual voting machine. So if you've never used one of the new voting machines here in Harris County, you can come out on Tuesday night and see a demonstration of how to use one of the new machines to get you as comfortable as possible before you come and cast your vote during early vote and on November 8th. 
The book is called The Kid Who Became Governor. We've been speaking with the writer and illustrator of the book, Brad Pritchett. Thank you for coming on. Always a pleasure. Happy to talk with you, Brian. Part of our Queer Voices community listens on KPFT, which is a nonprofit community radio station. And as such, KPFT does not endorse or hold any standing on matters of politics. If you would like equal airtime to represent an alternative point of view, please contact us through kpft.org or our own website at queervoices.org. This is Queer Voices. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, and today I'm talking with C. Patrick McElvain. Patrick is the founder of the Walk for Mental Health Awareness, and he's going to share his journey to establishing the event in the organization and the changes that are taking place now as we're in the month of October, which is the month for mental health awareness. Patrick. How did you get started with creating the Walk for Mental Health Awareness? Wonderful question. Slight correction. October is World Mental Health Week, which is what we are in right now. And October 10th is World Mental Health Day. The month of May is the National Mental Health Awareness Month. Why is the Mental Health Awareness Day and week in October? Talk to the World Federation of Mental Health Awareness. They're the ones that selected. <laughs> they established it. I thought it was also established through the World Health Organization. Who may have joined in with agreement, but my understanding and the research that I've done is the World Federation of Mental Health. It's always October 10th? Correct. Just as December 1st. In our community, may be more, more known as December 1st is always World AIDS Day. October 10th is always World Mental Health Day. How did you get involved in creating a walk? Deborah, thank you for letting me go into that because I think it's very ironic how this happened. I am a person, my mental challenges, you know, I've had most of my life. Uh, some of them are low self-esteem. Uh, A part of that dialogue is I don't exist. No one listens to me. I'm sort of invisible. I somehow, and I do not know, I was guided by the internet to a something called the Walk for Depression Awareness from St. Louis, Missouri to Washington, D.C. I have no idea how I found that. I clicked on it. And if it was a walk, I believe something like 85, 53 days, a number of days that I could not be out of Houston due to all of my volunteer activity. There was a caveat. If you could raise $1,500, they would fly you to Washington, D.C., and you could, you could participate in the last 10 miles. I have been fortunate to have a a wonderful, supportive band of sisters, and I was able to raise that money within minutes. I contacted uh, Steve Curran, who was developing the walk, and he was also the founder of Walk for Depression Awareness in St. Louis. They had their third year in existence at the time. I flew up to D.C. I met with Steve, and it was like we were Two twin brothers uh, separated at birth. I mean, it's just ironic the way we connected, the way we experienced each other's energy. He asked if I would consider bringing a chapter of the Walk for Depression Awareness to Houston. I thought maybe a nanosecond and said, yes, of course. So I come back after the walk, which was phenomenal. Uh, uh, If I were to compare this walk, the walk for depression awareness on the mall to the first national walk in D.C. for gay and lesbian rights, there were maybe 10 of us uh, for the walk for depression awareness. So I came back to D.C. Steve went back to St. Louis. He talked with his board and they wanted to become more inclusive with mental illness and not just focus on depression. So the board decided and agreed to change the name from depression awareness to mental health awareness. Steve came down to Houston, had a charter with him. We signed it. We had a a meeting of of the board and uh, Deborah, I think you were there. Then he went back to St. Louis. We formed the groundwork and started hosting our first event 
in October of 2011. We started forming in 2010. Our first walk was in 2011. I personally would not have had the gumption, the wherewithal, the know-how, the ability, the strength to have put a walk together. Somehow the universe sent Steve and I a connection and it happened. He came down for the first walk. His bipolar got in the way and he and I had an argument. He had driven that night from Saturday, uh, Friday night, Saturday morning to, to the walk here in Houston. He and I had an argument. He jumped in his car and drove back to St. Louis. Ironically, about three weeks, may, maybe eight weeks later, he folded. He closed down the walk for mental health awareness in St. Louis, which left only, only I. That was the creation. I have no idea. The universe made it happen. Let me just interject here that I serve as the Director of Advocacy for the Walk for Mental Health Awareness. Patrick, you've been a volunteer and active in politics for many, many years, so you knew a lot of people. As you started this effort, and it's very unfortunate about Stephen, and that proves some of what you and I have discussed in the past about when you're doing work like this and you're being inclusive, that includes people that, in fact, may be challenged with mental health issues. And people really need to understand the various degrees that can exist. I mean, I maintain that we all have a little something and some of it is just how we cope as we move through the world. And some of it is more involved with being neurodivergent or having some other issue, addictive issues, or in fact, psychiatric issues, or which are in fact mental health issues. And not everyone always sees that. It can range from autism in children, all the way into people developing Alzheimer's. These are all brain illnesses, and it presents challenges. The awareness comes in, one, for individuals who are challenged with mental health issues to be able to navigate the world a little better, and the other is to educate the larger populace to what's involved so that we can all get to a better place with dealing with it. 2011, October, and I think the walk has always been at the same park every year. One slight exception, I had uh, Mayor Parker agree to be with us as she had for several walks. And when her office contacted me to know where to have her go, I realized I had not reserved the park. We had been in Studi Park. I frantically looked around and we went to Spots Park was available. So one or two years we were in Spots Park. Usually it's at Studi Park. Beautiful view of the downtown right there by the bayou. It's a lovely little place. How did you get started? I mean, you said you didn't really know what you were doing, but who did you go talk to? How did you decide how to puzzle this together? Uh, Let me back up for just a minute with mental illness diagnosis. And I am one of the few that do use the terminology mental illness. I think when we use mental health, we are sugarcoating and only supporting the stigma of not calling it what it is. I am challenged with a mental illness. I am not challenged with mental health. And recently, there are over 350 diagnoses of mental illness. And just in the last year, two years, there have been two new categories added because of all uh, COVID, uh, many issues. Uh, There are now two additional diagnoses. So back to putting this together, Uh, as I say, Steve presented it almost in in a package with a bow on it. So he took what he had done and said, this is a model of how to go about it. Correct. And as you said, I hid out. I did hit out at one time. I did not want any attention drawn to me. For years, I would not wear the color red, the color pink, anything that would stand out in a crowd because I didn't want that attention. So in politics, for years, I took the job, what I call it as very important, as any organization that relies on volunteers, as we all know. My job, I I viewed as I was sort of the baseboard of the structure. 
something that is very important to the facilitating the room or the building going on. Those connections that I made have served me extremely well. That is why, because of the walk, we are a nonprofit, all-volunteer organization. So we have three groups that have yearly memberships to support the walk. As we are so grassroots, we have not yet been able to get the larger corporations to donate to us. So these three groups renew their membership every year at $300. We have the foundation group, those who were with us from the very beginning. We have the friend circle, those who came after. And then also a a very important group is the electeds or appointed group. These are people that I have met through the years. Judge Stephen Kirkland, Anise, Robert Gallegos. I'm going blank right now because I'm being sort of forced to pull things out of my brain. Yeah, but there's uh, been many people who have stepped forward and offered their support and encouragement to you. The walk, when you say the walk, that means a fun 5K event. So individuals, they form teams. Explain how the walk is in of itself, it's not raising money for the walk. I think that is a slight misunderstanding. The fundraising platform is very much like the marathon with the walk. The walk Houston produces it. We create the venue. We provide everything from porta potties to insurance. We then look for nonprofits that are located in the greater Houston area and ask them to participate and become one of our walk agencies. There is no charge to be a walk agency outside of. I feel that a walk agency, a nonprofit, must have sort of dog in the show or dog in whatever it's called. Because if you have ownership in it, you are more likely to, to want to promote and have a better result. So I do ask nonprofits to put a walk team together. For our definition, a walk team starts at three people. Then the walkers promote. They promote their participation. They ask all of their board members. They ask every person in their database, alumni, anyone to either form their own walk team. The walk existed since 2011. Then something happened, I don't know, in 2020 and... For some reason, there wasn't a walk that year. What was going on, Patrick? That was COVID, that honorary, mean, pesky event. So there was some activities, but it wasn't really a walk as it had traditionally been. We had asked folks to at least do a, a walk in their community, their neighborhood, do a virtual walk and record it. And then there's also been in the past a luncheon with a speaker. You had some very outstanding speakers. I'm thinking of Dr. Marsh with the VA and other people through the years who have talked about all the issues involved with mental illness. And then you've also done this campaign with Houston Metro, and it's part of the awareness campaign. Tell me what that looks like. First, our luncheon is called Changing Minds, Changing Lives. If you can change a person's perspective of how they're thinking, they can start the journey to a more positive life. The Metro event, you know, I don't know how it came. Again, I don't know how it came about, but I somehow reached out to Metro and wanted to do a joint PSA. We exchanged some emails. And finally agreed upon that they would do a campaign called My Mental Illness Doesn't Define Me. It runs during World Mental Health Week. There are currently posters up on some of the red line platforms, the uh, medical center, the one started with the D. Dyson, or I forget the exact name, Downtown Transit Center, San and South. What this My Mental Illness Doesn't Define Me, it includes people who are consumers of mental illness and allies. Any any minority needs strong allies with them. The reason I do this, I want local faces, people that can look at and see that skin tone, see that face, and it resembles them so they can relate. It says, it gives their start short quote about they are still able to live a productive life while dealing with these challenges. It is only one segment of them. 
the allies, and we've had Mayor Parker, we've had County Judge Lena Hidalgo, we've had Judge Steve Kirkland, we've had State Representative Christine Moreno, oh, names, please forgive me. It shows that there is more to life than just that. Ironically, when we were sort of announcing the first campaign, we had an event at City Hall. And somehow I invited Mr. Lambert. I reached out. Mr. Lambert is the chief executive officer and president of Metro to join us at City Hall. I met him. I shook his hand and I said, I hope that this will be the beginning of a continuous program. And he said, yes. He then shared with me how it is so important that his employees understand and know mental illness. He says many of his staff have issues dealing with, and I'm a writer, I only use Metro or I walk. Many of the light rail conductors, when they have accidents, they go into a depression, into issues in which they need counseling. Many of the bus drivers that have to interact with us, and some of us can be rather rude, again, they develop issues that need to be addressed. And so they have a, a mental health program. So he is very involved and very supportive of our event. So that is it. And that's really what it's all about. I know you have this catchphrase, which is to have a positive public dialogue about mental illness and to help remove the stigma, because the stigma is what prevents a lot of people from seeking help, which is very unfortunate because mental illness is very treatable. It's an overwhelming problem in our society because there's not adequate resources. And that was one reason for the walk to help these agencies to build up so they have the funds to provide services. We maintain a Facebook page and we send out information and affirming messages. But this year, you've gone in a slightly different direction. There's not a walk this year. So what's going on? Let me back up just a minute. It is so important for people to be able to realize that they are not alone, that there are others. There is such a correlation of, between the struggles and challenges of our family, of the LGBT community. Once you recognize, once you begin to ask, could this be me? Could this be my path in life? Once you start that step forward, it becomes a bit easier. So that's why it is so important to see others who look like ourselves. After 12 years, something organic has happened. The walk is evolving to our next chapter. My positive public dialogue, the reason I have that is because so often the only time media, regardless of what platform, is showing us one of my brothers or sisters or cousins well, the only time they are showing us is when we are harming ourselves or harming others. A vast majority of people who are challenged with mental illness also have a low self-esteem. There's no role models for us. We do not have many established role models. So because of the low self-esteem, because of not knowing what to do, they emulate what they see in front of them, what they hear. I did it for a long time. Uh, so they see, oh, so I'm supposed to go out and cause harm. That's why I wish there was a counter of uh, positive public dialogue. Every time there is violence being shown, I wish there were a picture or a segment about two or three people who were challenged and living a productive life dealing with these issues. Back to what we are doing with the wall. For so long, I have wanted to produce an event with art and food and entertainment. And I have always wanted to call it because there is such a negative stigma with mental illness. And I have wanted to create an event, uh, the creative side of my mental illness through the art. I believe that we are all in agreement that a vast majority of artists, regardless of what genre you use as your art form, Many of the artists also deal with some form of mental illness, maybe more, and they use their art as a cathartic process. The beauty of that is out of that confusion, out of that fear, out of that frustration, out of that anger, beauty is created. That's why it's the creative side. So starting in 2023, I and others will be posting an evening of fine food, great art, and wonderful entertainment. 
And it is called the creative side of my mental illness through the arts. It'll be a World Mental Health Day. We're going to start focusing on World Mental Health Day. Just as Houston for the last 10 years has done a December 1st World AIDS Day, I feel that it is high time that Houston also started acknowledging and bringing more positive awareness to mental illness. So we will be doing an event every October 10th commemorating World Mental Health Day. We've been talking to C. Patrick Malkovane, the founding director of the Walk for Mental Health Awareness. This is Queer Voices. This is Deborah Moncrief-Bell, and today I'm talking with Shauna Ross. She's written a book called Tribeless, Discovering the Truth About Nature Versus Nurture as One Woman Finds Her Birth Mother. Shauna, you have quite the story to tell, and you've shared it in this book. It starts off in East Texas. It starts off with you as a, a little girl. I guess you were in kindergarten, and people were saying, what are you? Are you Mexican? Because you looked a little different than most of the people around you. So then what happened? Yes, I did. Um, and anyone who is familiar with East Texas knows that differences really of any kind aren't really looked upon that well. It's much better than it was all of those many years ago. But it was tough growing up then. I was raised by white parents. I am Navajo. My mother was put into one of the residential schools that we're hearing so much about now. And when she got out, was only skilled for a trade and went to work for a family in Fort Worth, became pregnant with me. And that's how I ended up being adopted from Fort Worth because uh, the people that my mother worked for told her she was welcome to come back and live with them and continue working for them and raising their children, but she could not come back with me. And so my mother had no recourse but to give me up for adoption. I certainly did look different from everyone else, and that's how I finally found out I was adopted, just looking so different. So you asked your parents about, hey, why do I look so different? And they told you, you, you were five? I was six. I was in first grade. And they said, well, you were adopted and your mother was Native American. So you always knew that growing up, but you didn't really give it much more thought at the time. And then life went on. There were some really wonderful things such as getting to horseback ride and even being given a horse of your own. What did you say about that horse? It was mean as a snake or something. <laughs> mean as a snake. Its number one goal was how fast can I get you off? I had a lot of experience playing like I was in the circus and learning how to fly off that horse and not get killed because that was his main objective. Get me off. <laughs> Just kill me if he could. But I loved him anyway <laughs> because he was mine. <laughs> right. And you're living in East Texas, fairly close to Lufkin, which, you know, many of us can relate to. We kind of know what that area is like. And you were not only adopted, but you were the only child with these two people who were conservative and kind of old fashioned in many ways. By the time you hit high school, there were some things happening and there started to be real clashes with your parents. So what were some of the things that were going on and, and the difficulties you were having? I think this is one of the more important aspects of Tribeless and why I wrote it, and that is being adopted. And so many times when people adopt a child, they put all of their hopes and dreams into that child. Many times they've tried for, you know, it could be years to have a child of their own and were not successful, which was the case with my parents. I'm not sure that my father ever really wanted a child. I think my mother was the driving force behind that, as she was in most everything in their relationship. But they did put a lot of expectations on me. And one of the mistakes they made, and what I fear many adoptive parents make the same mistake, is I'm raising this child. So my nurture 
should override any nature that this child comes with. And that is simply not the case. I think it is so important for prospective adoptive parents to understand you are raising a thinking, living human being that has different DNA from you. They already have imprinted different experiences in their lives, even though they are just children. And that's how I really noticed the difference between my parents and I. We were polar opposites. I was athletic. I was creative. I loved the performing arts. I loved to sing. I loved to dance. And my parents thought that that things like that were completely frivolous. I wanted to be an actress. They were completely against that. Their whole thing was, well, that's a profession just full of perversion and perverted people. And why would you want to do that? And it caused a lot of friction with us. They couldn't understand me. They were puzzled by me at every turn. And then as a freshman in high school, when I had my first serious, serious girl crush, I knew that even though I was going to fight it as hard as I could, I knew that that was going to be my reality and that it would never be accepted. And the differences in between me and my parents were just going to become more and more and more. And I knew that if they ever found out I had affection and love toward women, I would be persona non grata. And that's what happened. Yeah, you had a very traumatic coming out because while you fought it and you did fight it, and including getting involved with a man who you loved, it's fair to say he was someone that really meant a great deal to you and that you cared for, but this other nature was there with you. In high school, you pushed it away, but years later, you meet up with that woman again and what transpires? You know, I think back on that day so many times, and who would ever think that your life as a senior and that person's life as a freshman in high school, you go out, you have lunch in Lufkin. I'm petrified that we're going to be recognized. Because she was fairly obvious. <laughs> People knew that she was gay. Her father had been a minister and he mm-hmm. they, they had had to move because of that. And so you were like, I, I don't want to be mean to this person. So I'm going to go to lunch with them. And you did feel attraction, but you said, no, 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 I can't be one of those people. So by the time you're in college at University of Houston, by the way, you meet up with this person again. Her name's Jan. I don't know if that's her real name. And you do begin a relationship. It's a big point in the book, so maybe we won't give it away here, but it is a quite dramatic experience. But you overcome that and you continue your relationship and you're together for five years. Yes, we were together for five years. Before you met up with Jan again, you spent some time as kind of a wild child. And I was reading these names and I was reading all these places you used to go. And I'm like, oh, I don't even remember that bar or, (laughs) you know, because it's set in Houston because it's your life and that's where your life is. But so it kind of takes you in on that level that if you're a Houstonian and you recognize all these things, What was going on then? What were you doing? My parents and I had such a tumultuous relationship. And, you know, I talk at length in the book about how I was determined, absolutely determined to make them love me and be proud of me. That was my number one goal. And it seemed that nothing I did was good enough. I was very successful in high school. I was nominated for many, many awards. The night I graduated, I spent more time walking up and receiving awards than I did staying seated. I got scholarships. I got a two-year acting scholarship, all expenses paid to a small junior college in Lufkin, Angelina Junior College. But my parents just would not hear any of that, and nothing I could do could make them proud of me. So I decided, well, you know... (laughs) I've done everything I know how. I have achieved 
everything I could achieve in high school. If you think I am such a horrible person, guess what? I'm going to become that person. And it was one way that I just hardened my heart against them. I got involved in drugs and I spent many, many, many nights in the bars in Houston. Anyone in the 80s who ever went to the bars a lot will recognize the names. The parade was one of my favorites and I spent a lot of time at the parade. You talk about your father and how he probably was not even interested in having kids, but in a lot of ways, he was your more nurturing parent. He's who you went horseback riding with. You seem to have an ease with him that you never had with your mother. She had bad health. She suffered from depression. As you did, even as a child, you realized that there was depression going on. I don't know if you realized it in hindsight or if you realized it at the time that there were depressive bouts. This leaving home, you're at Angelina College, your parents aren't happy with your major, and I can't remember, what was it that happened? Something happened and you pretty much packed up your car and left. You were still dating Jack. Jack had gotten a job with a travel band, which is very big business. There are these show bands and they travel all over the United States and perform. He was an enormous performer. He had been a featured player in Up With People. I don't know how many people are going to remember Up With People. (laughs) I, I Actually, it's still around, but it's not what it used to be in the 70s and 80s. It was a it was a pretty big deal then. When he returned from that tour and went out with his show band and returned from that, he had decided that he was also going to go to the University of Houston to continue his education. In education, he wanted to be a teacher. And I had decided at that point that if I was ever going to have any chance at living my truth, living my life, I was going to have to leave and get out of East Texas, which had really been my goal all along through high school get through this, do the best you can, and leave. And he decided that he was going to go, then it's like, here we go. Let's let's do this. Let's get out. I think that the goal of a lot of people that live in small towns is to leave it. <laughs> yes, that's very true. But, you know, not so much where I was in a little place called Hudson, which is west of Lufkin. It's almost a generational thing where people stay. They just Mm. don't leave. I know of two other people that I went to high school with who left. That's really about all I know of. It it is truly like it's generational. It's in your blood. We're going to stay here. This is our home. You had this relationship with Jan. You had quite the career history. So let's touch a little bit on some of the work that you did in college. You were flying up in helicopters and doing the traffic report. I always say I've had many lives. I've certainly had many work lives. That is for sure. When I left Angelina College and I had to give up my acting scholarship, which my parents were thrilled about, I still wanted to do something very similar. So I decided to switch my major to radio, television, and film and focused on broadcast journalism. Companies around town would post jobs on the um, radio, television, film job board. And one of the things that was most popular was Metro Traffic Control. We'll have more of Deborah's conversation with Shana Ross next week on Queer Voices. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Wendy Natividad. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending October 22, 2022. Civil marriage is now open to queer couples in the Mexican states of Tabasco and Estado de México, or Idamex. Estado de México, the state of Mexico, is the country's most populous. 17 million people in a region that almost entirely surrounds Mexico City call it home. Their legislature voted 49 in favor and 12 opposed for marriage equality with six abstentions on October 16th. In the southern state of Tabasco, the Congress approved a marriage equality bill on October 20th. That vote was 22 in favor and six opposed with seven abstentions. 
Including Edomex and Tabasco, there are now 30 states in Mexico with marriage equality. On October 19th, committees in the state of Tamaulipas's Congress cleared its own marriage equality bill. If that one passes, Guerrero will be Mexico's lone state holdout. The Federal District of Mexico City established marriage equality in 2009. The nation's highest court ordered it in 2015, but left each state to decide how to do it. Guerrero will have to get with the program soon. If you blinked, you may have missed the shortest tenure of a prime minister in British history. Conservative Party PM Liz Truss admitted in her brief October 20th resignation speech, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. That mandate included her tax cuts for the rich economic package that failed to get support from her own party. She officially offered her resignation to King Charles III after all of 44 days at the top. Most LGBTQ people are happy to see Truss go. She had appointed a number of notoriously anti-queer ministers, many of whom echoed her anti-trans rhetoric. Some even voiced opposition to marriage equality. There's no telling how much better, or worse, the next Tory PM will be. Truss will stay at number 10 Downing Street until the Tories select their new leader to be formally appointed to succeed her by the king. That makes two conservative prime ministers with another in the wings over three months. Opposition Labour Party leader Keir Starmer is calling for a general election. He says, Britain is not the Tories' personal fiefdom to run how they wish. Russian lawmakers are discussing an expansion of the law against the dissemination of so-called LGBTQ propaganda to minors. One proposal would extend the 2013 propaganda ban to adults. Violators can already be fined or even jailed. State Duma Information Committee Chairman Alexander Kinstein used the war in Ukraine and Western influence as an excuse this week, railing, our enemy really holds the propaganda of sodomy as the core of its influence. It's the chairman's propaganda that concerns the Russian Book Union. They sent an open letter to Kinstein warning that some classics of Russian literature could become the measure's collateral damage. They cited a scene in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel Devils that describes child sexual abuse a monologue from Alexander Ostrovsky's play The Storm that could be viewed as suicide propaganda, and an excerpt from Mikhail Bulgakov's novel Morphine that could be considered drug propaganda. Lawmakers are reportedly also considering a law to deport foreign nationals thought to be promoting LGBTQ propaganda. Maybe such a move to deport queer-promoting foreign nationals would help get U.S. basketball all-star Brittany Griner out of Russian hands. Griner spent her 32nd birthday in a Russian prison on October 18th, showered with messages from well-wishers. As negotiations for her release continue, the Kremlin is now howling about the arrest of the son of a prominent Russian official and close Putin ally. U.S. officials detained him in Milan on charges of money laundering and evading sanctions. Ironically, the official response from Moscow accused the Biden administration of taking hostages for political purposes. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre refused to speculate when asked if the U.S. was upping the ante for a prisoner exchange that would include Greiner and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who's serving a 16-year sentence in a Russian prison on trumped-up espionage charges. Greiner has been jailed in Russia since mid-February, soon after Putin launched his unprovoked war on Ukraine. Convicted of illegal distribution of medicinal cannabis vape cartridges that she had accidentally left in her luggage, she's been sentenced to the near-maximum nine years in a Russian prison. Biden and Putin are expected to be at the G20 Economic Summit in mid-November in Indonesia. The U.S. president has said he'll only meet directly with Putin if Greiner's release is part of the conversation. Greiner was able to respond to her birthday messages on social media to say, All the support and love are definitely helping me. Her wife, Sherelle, and a number of WNBA players renewed their campaign this week to demand her release. Reiner's attorneys told the New York Times that she's not doing well in cramped quarters at a Russian penal colony. They say the conditions there are borderline inhumane. A U.S. college football player made history this week. 
Hampton University defensive lineman Byron Perkins became the first Division I player at a historically black college or university to come out as a gay man. A junior at the HBCU in Virginia, Perkins' Instagram post said, I will no longer be living a lie. No one should have to live a life crippled by what society thinks. Authenticity is everything to me. Perkins told Outsports.com in an exclusive interview that his coaches have been supportive and that the reaction from teammates has been mostly very good. He declared, I want people to know they can be themselves. It's about that kid who's going to see this and think he can be himself too. High-profile U.S. Republicans are not in the policy closet ahead of the crucial midterm elections on November 8th. They've already promised to push for a national abortion ban and to gut the vital social safety nets of Medicare and Social Security. This week, 33 Republican members of the U.S. House signed on to a bill to nationalize Florida's infamous don't-say-gay law. Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson is sponsoring the measure to ban federal funding of LGBTQ-inclusive instruction for students under the age of 10 in U.S. public schools. The Florida law is so vaguely written that teachers at every grade level in that state fear repercussions if they allow any discussion of LGBTQ identities in their classrooms. No Republican proposals will see the light of day, unless they win legislative majorities in the midterm elections. However, any regressive Republican-approved legislation would most certainly be vetoed by President Joe Biden, who still has two more years in office. In Florida itself, the don't-say-gay law is getting new teeth. The Board of Education, appointed by anti-queer Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, voted to punish any teacher found to have said gay with the loss of their jobs under the Parental Rights in Education law. Suspensions or revocations of their credentials to teach in the state's public schools are possible. The board also voted this week to require public school officials to notify parents by mail and online if they allow students and staff to use gender-segregated campus bathrooms or changing rooms according to some criteria other than biological sex at birth. A law to ban drag shows? Seriously, that's a real proposal being offered to the majority Republicans in Idaho's legislature. Idaho Family Policy Center leader Blaine Kanzadi told the Idaho Capital Sun, No child should ever be exposed to sexual exhibitions like drag shows in public places, whether that's at a public library or a public park. He compares drag to the racism of blackface in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Idaho LGBTQ activists say they'll mount a strong campaign against the bill, if it's ever actually introduced in the state legislature. Finally... Multi-Emmy-winning satirist John Oliver schooled irrational transphobes in a recent installment of his HBO series Last Week Tonight, and it only took 30 seconds. As the writer Julia Serrano has pointed out, when you look at a chart of left-handedness among Americans over the 20th century, you see a massive spike when we stopped forcing kids to write with their right hand and then a plateau. That doesn't mean everyone became left-handed or that there was a rapid-onset Southpaw dysphoria. It means people were free to be who they f- were. And to the extent that some young people are just exploring their gender identity, how exactly is that a bad thing? Who the f- are they hurting? That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending October 22nd, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Wendy Natividad. Stay healthy. And I'm John Dyer V. Stay safe. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage queervoices.org for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. 
The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.